We're going to continue tonight with the, the story of Elijah, and we're joining him here just after that incredible act of God on Mount Carmel and the destruction of the, the prophets of Baal. And we'll begin reading from 1 Kings 18 and from verse 45. 1 Kings 18, verse 45. And we read, Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Now Ahab had told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he, then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, 
Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nishmi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Thank God for his word to us. Let's come and let's just pray together. Father, we pray again tonight that you'll take this story of the, the life of Elijah, a story that's so alien to so many of our experiences, and yet that is, in, that is so rich in truth that can be applied to our lives. Lord, help us to, to glean out your truth, and help us particularly through all that's said tonight to hear your voice calling to us and to hear exactly what you're saying into our lives at this moment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I wonder, have you ever been in the situation in life where you've thought that you've got to the end of a job and then suddenly you realise that that's actually just so very far from the truth? I'm sure, I'm sure all of us have experienced this uh, to some extent and different times in our lives. One of the best stories I've ever heard that relate to this, I heard when I was in the army, and it concerns something that I believe certainly used to take place when soldiers were being trained and assessed to see if they were suitable to serve in the SAS. And what happened was that a group of soldiers were given 10 daisies, and then they were told to take them up one by one at a full pelt run with a full pack on to the top of a nearby hill, which could better be described as a small mountain. And after they'd finished this trivial, humiliating, and absolutely exhausting task, and had placed their daisies nice and neatly on a little stone cairn that was there for that on the top of this hill, then they were told by the, the big, domineering SAS sergeant in charge, that's lovely, well done. Now bring them all back down to me, one by one. Now that's a, a pretty extreme example, and it's a test designed to sift out these men who've got the kind of qualities, physical and psychological, that's needed for the SAS. But I think most of us, to some extent, have gone through at least something of the, the same kind of experience, thinking that we've got to the end of a job, that we've completed something, only to find that we've maybe only scratched the surface of what actually needs to be done. But you see, all of this pales into insignificance compared to the experience of Elijah here. As we'll see now, as we look first of all at how Elijah drifted into a state of despair with this occurring after at the end of, of chapter 18, after Elijah had been on a, a spiritual and emotional, physical high. He'd been at his height. He'd just defeated the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. And it seemed, it must have seemed, that nothing could stand in the way of him and his God. Verse 46 describes wonderfully 
just to what heights Elijah had actually climbed. It says, the power of the Lord came upon Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Now, one writer suggests here the reason why Elijah was able to beat Ahab's chariot here was because of the floods that had been caused when the Lord poured down rain upon this drought-stricken parched land. I tell you, that may be, but still, despite that, a pretty exceptional occurrence when a man on foot beats a horse-drawn chariot. But for me, this, this does seem to be symbolic of a man who's on the mountaintop, a man who's known God's spiritual blessing upon his life in such a remarkable way, and in whose life, as it so often does, that, that blessing that he's experienced of the Lord has then overflowed to touch and affect every area of his life. So this is a man who in every way, spiritually, emotionally, physically, who's just overflowing with the reality of all that the goodness of God can mean in a human being's life. And then, almost mid-stride, all of this comes to an end. And it's not too difficult for us to trace at least the surface reason as to why this happened. And that is Jezebel's reaction when Ahab tells her what has happened. Sending a messenger to Elijah at Jezreel, 1 Kings 19.2, and stating her intention to slaughter Elijah as he had slaughtered her prophets of Baal. Well, the impact of, of this threat upon Elijah is absolutely instantaneous because we're told that he takes fright, he runs eventually into the desert, he collapses under a broom tree and prays that he might die. Verse 4, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, I'm no better than my ancestors. The question that I think we've got to ask and at least try to answer is why here? Why did this threat from Jezebel have this kind of devastating effect upon Elijah? Why? And I, and I think we've got to look at a little bit deeper than a simple physical fear here. Because remember, Elijah had been under physical threat. His life had been in physical danger since the moment of his first sermon way back at the beginning of 1 Kings 17. So although there was perhaps an element of physical fear, undoubtedly, yet I believe it takes more than that to explain Elijah's collapse. So what is, what is the explanation then? Well, I believe that it is that Elijah, who, remember, we noted a few weeks ago, suggested a few weeks ago, was a sensitive and fairly highly strong man, and he's, here is a man who's been under pretty constant pressure for a number of years. Well, I believe that it is in this moment here, in this moment, when he believed the job was done and when therefore his guard was right down, when suddenly here in the face of this threat from Jezebel, he is brought face to face with the terrible, tremendous, and above all, the resilient power of evil. You see, Elijah had thought his struggle with evil was over. He'd hoped, no doubt, that, that Jezebel would be deposed because of what happened, or at least that, that by the circumstances of this, she'd be brought to see reason, brought to her knees, 
But suddenly here, he sees in her vengeful, implacable, totally unreasonable attitude that though a battle may have been won, the war is by no means over. And Elijah simply can't take it. Just the thought of the incessant, ongoing conflict, the sight of the terrible, determined power of evil, it's all too much for him. He just can't go on. And so off he runs into the desert. And I have little doubt that as he ran, a fair part of his thinking must have been dominated by the thought that perhaps the God whose victory so recently he'd been rejoicing in, perhaps he wasn't going to win the war after all. Now, I don't know about you, but I can sympathize quite readily with the feelings of Elijah in this incident because if there's one lesson I've learned in the, the ministry through at times bitter experience, it's this lesson, this lesson of just how powerful, how incessant and resilient evil can be. For a number of occasions, I've seen and experienced blessing in my own life or I've seen God at work in the church. And it's got me there. And, you know, I've begun to think that at last we're getting somewhere. You know, At last we're beginning to make the kind of progress that, that God really wants of his people, the kind of progress that will please him. But then almost immediately after this time of rejoicing or even during it, Satan is struck in one way or another. And he's struck hard. And it's happened far too often. I've seen it happen too often for it just to be some kind of coincidence, part of the normal cycle of life, as people say. Now, you see, so often, though, we're surprised when this happens, just like Elijah here. And we sometimes feel in this even let down by God. But really, you know, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be. Not at least if we're reasonably mature and clear-thinking Christians. Because the joy of God's people, as they enjoy God's blessing, is always something that will infuriate Satan beyond anything else, and that he will always do his best to strike out against. Because a joyous Christian, a joyous church, is usually an active Christian and an active church. And Satan, in his total opposition to God and all the things of God, must do. It's his nature, demands it. He has to do all he can to disrupt that kind of joy. It's part of the ongoing battle between good and evil, between God and Satan. So you see, in a sense, all, all of us who are here tonight, who are Christians, I hope we have experienced this. Because that shows that we really are in the battle for God. That we're actually involved in real spiritual conflict. But you know, we do have one very definite advantage over Elijah. And that is that as we, like him, have to face this ongoing battle with evil. And as we, like him, know Satan hit out against us until we grow weary in the struggle and feel we can go on no longer, we do have one advantage for an element of doubt in Elijah's mind despite his belief in the one sovereign reigning God an element of doubt in his mind about that final victory of God that was in his circumstances to some extent 
understandable. But you see, we, we who know of God's ultimate glorious victory in the cross and resurrection of Christ, we need have no such doubts. For we know that sin and evil and death, Satan himself, has been defeated in Christ. And we know that the struggle we are engaged in now, that's really just the working out, the final working out of that victory here on earth. Now that doesn't mean that we won't, with Elijah, at times grow weary in the struggle. It doesn't mean that we won't, like him, perhaps at certain points, reach almost the point of despair. But what it does mean is that we have a rock to cling on to in that knowledge of God's victory in Christ that he never had. Anyway, let's move on to look at how God deals with a man who's in the pit of despair. Let's move on to look at an act of deliverance. And, and one thing I want you to notice here, above anything else, in this act of deliverance, and all its, its varying facets, one thing I want you particularly to take note of is the gentleness of God. The gentleness of God. Because notice, God doesn't, in a sense, stand there saying to Elijah, Listen, Elijah, this is a disgraceful state for a man of God like you, for a prophet, to get into. I mean, Elijah, there's no need for this. No, there is not, because I've given you all the spiritual resources necessary for you to be victorious, even in this situation. But God doesn't say this. Although there is undoubtedly an element of truth in it, as is seen in his later spiritual re-education of Elijah. It's a central part of this act of deliverance. But he doesn't say it here. He doesn't say it at this point because God, unlike many Christians, is a God who's interested in the practicalities of situations as they actually are, rather than what they theoretically could be. And God knows that once a man or a woman is down, it's no use dwelling on the fact that this need not be so. No, it's not, because the time is not right, at least not initially for that. Because the weaknesses have already been exploited. The pressures have already been brought to bear. The person's already in pieces and fallen apart. And so what's needed at this point isn't a wagging finger of censure, but rather it's a hand extended to that hurting man or woman, to love them and care for them and gently lift them up from the depths. You see, God is such a realist and he is such a gentle God. How I wish more Christians could learn to be more like him. For so often I hear Christians being hard on themselves and at other times hard on others for their failures. You see, we want to be perfect, but because we're not, because we've let God down, we, we sit around sometimes and we weep and wail about our weakness. Well, I want to tell you, I've got news for you. You know, God wants us to be perfect as well. But he knows that we're not. He knows that we are at best weak people 
who make many mistakes in the process of being changed and transformed. So listen, don't think that your weakness is news to God. Don't think that your weakness makes you in some way unusable to God or different to everyone else. Because while your particular weakness might be unique to you, yet you know we've all got them. In our own way, we've all got them. And especially don't. So often it seems to me because of a kind of perverted sense of pride, because you're ashamed, because the real you that you see you are, you wish you weren't, is there for all to see. No, don't allow your weakness and failure to incapacitate you and to turn you in on yourselves. Instead, choose to do otherwise. Choose to turn to God. Turn to God because he's there reaching out to you. He knows your weakness. He understands your weakness. He knows who you are. And he accepts you in your weakness. Yes, in a wonderful way. A way beyond our understanding. It says we come to God in our weakness. It says we come to him weak and humble, broken, repented, empty of ourselves. It's then, as we are weak in ourselves, that God is able to do wonderful things in us. Yes, for how gentle and how realistic the Lord is. Notice, for instance, how initially after Elijah's frenzied outburst in prayer, notice the Lord attempts to say nothing at this point to him of any spiritual Significance. See, again, he knows the time isn't right. He knows that Elijah hasn't yet reached the stage where he'll be able to take in what has to be shared with him. So the Lord gently deals first with the physical and to an extent the mental and emotional needs of his battle-weary servant. So first of all, he gives him sleep. So practical, verse 5. Then Elijah lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Now, as I think anyone who's gone through any kind of, you know, real tough experience in their life, whether it be depression or anything like that, can testify. Whether that condition be physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever, at its root. I think people who at that point of brokenness can testify that sleep in this kind of condition, when we're in that kind of place, is the most precious gift of all. It's the kind of soothing ointment that's poured upon the wounded heart, mind, and soul. Truly, as Psalm 127.2 says, the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. So Elijah sleeps. And then when Elijah wakes, food has been prepared for him by an angel of the Lord. What a blessing this must have been. And how many people are there who've passed through an experience of despair through a valley experience similar to that of Elijah's and who wished and prayed that some angel in the form of one of God's people will prepare their food or do some simple task for them that they feel is beyond them. Would do that simple thing that they, they know that they should do and they know that they need to do but that in their brokenness they can neither work up nor neither the enthusiasm, the concentration or the strength to actually get down to do it. And so then, this process of rest and sleep continues. 
as the Lord gently begins the healing process in Elijah. And then Elijah is sent by God on a journey into the desert. And here again, the Lord shows his gentleness and his patience with Elijah. Because he knows that time, in this instance, is the great healer. And he knows that if this healing process that he has begun is to be completed, that Elijah needs time. Time to be alone and reflect. Time to rest. Time to come to terms with himself and his situation. And time, most importantly, to come to terms with, to reach out again to his God. Aren't the real lessons in this for us to learn? In the patience and understanding of God. For so often, so many Christians are so sadly lacking in both these qualities. We don't give people time. We don't give ourselves time. We don't have patience with others or ourselves. Well, finally, after this journey of 40 days and nights, Elijah gets to the destination that God had planned for him. Horeb, the mountain of God. So has then God's gentle process of healing begun to work in Elijah? Well, I believe so, because listen to Elijah's reply to God's question in verse 9 as to, to why he's there. In verse 10 he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death by the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. You see, I think that the significant thing about that reply is that the note of desperate bitterness that was so prominent in his prayer in verse 4 is now gone. You see, his outlook on life hasn't yet been drastically altered. He's still defeated by the power of evil. He's still on his knees to some extent. He still has doubts about the victorious power of his God. But he's been sufficiently healed, physically, emotionally, and mentally, for that destructive force of bitterness to be removed from his life. You see, time and God's gentle care and patience is beginning to do its work. So now Elijah is ready for that completion of healing to take place. Now is the time for his spiritual healing, for his spiritual re-education. That takes place here in this glorious scene in verse 11, in the verses following, as the Lord passes by Elijah. Let me just read these verses to you again. Some of the most powerful and beautiful verses, I think, in the whole Bible. We read, A great and powerful wind tore the mountains and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, came a gentle whisper, or maybe more popularly, a still, small voice of calm. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Now you see, he did this 
because he recognized here the voice of God. And so like any Israelite, he covered his face. He was afraid to look upon the glory of the Lord. But, but why, though, did the Lord do this? Why did he cause all these apparently powerful things to happen and then reveal himself at the end by a gentle whisper? Well, I believe for precisely the same reason he brought Elijah to this specific place, this mountain of Horeb. For this is the mountain where previously he'd appeared to Moses and the people of Israel through fire and earthquake. And the reason why he did it was because he wanted to teach Elijah that he doesn't always do things that way. Because he wanted to teach him that he isn't always <clears throat> in the earthquake, the wind or fire. That he doesn't always work by the spectacular and the obviously powerful and miraculous. But that sometimes, in fact, I believe as often as not, he's to be found in the gentle whisper. That is in things apparently to our eye unimportant and insignificant. But you see, I believe a big part of Elijah's problem here was that after that, that great spectacular scene on Mount Carmel, well, he'd began to expect God to work in a similar way. In a similar way, when he was confronted by the outright of hostility of, of Jezebel at Jezreel. In fact, it seems he'd expected God to always walk in that kind of spectacular way. So then, when outwardly, instantly, nothing happened, when it didn't happen, then he came to the conclusion that if God wasn't going to walk in that way, then that was because... God was doing nothing. And then he moved on to the more terrifying conclusion that God could do nothing. But what God's telling him by speaking in this gentle whisper is that far from doing nothing, that he was still at work in the quietness, in his own gentle and yet infinitely powerful way he was still at work. He is still at work through things hidden, through things apparently insignificant. And yet at the right time, when all of these little insignificant things come together, how complete and how right his working and his way of working would be seen to be. That was the lesson the Lord, I believe, was trying to to teach to Elijah. And it's a lesson I think that so many Christians need urgently today to learn. For thinking that God's not at work, thinking that God's only at work in certain ways and has to work in those ways is an attitude towards the Christian life that has led many Christians into a place of despair. And until that attitude changes, they're going to stay there. You see, we think that unless we see the spectacular, but unless we experience the obviously miraculous and powerful, we think unless we see these things that, that God's not really there, that God's in some way absent. How we need to learn to appreciate the gentle voice, the gentle of working of God, both in our lives and in our church, in our world. 
And once we, we cultivate that kind of attitude, once we reach the point where we've got that kind of maturity of vision, then times of brokenness and downness, I think will be so much less of a danger for us. Well, Elijah's a fair way out of the woods here, but he's not yet gone all the way. No, he still needs finally one other lesson, a lesson in delegation. And that's it, he needs a lesson in delegation because of what the Lord says to him in verse 15 to 18 about anointing Hazael, Jehu, and Elijah to finish his work. And by what he then concludes in verse 18 where he says, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. If you see, another part, I believe, of Elijah's problem was that he thought that he alone could do the work. That he thought that God had no one else, that everything depended on him. He was the one who had to do it or it wouldn't be done. And so when he was confronted then by Jezebel, and when he saw in her how big this job really was, he couldn't face it. And he ran away. You see, he's been taking the responsibility for God's work all on his own shoulders. And he's been attempting to do it in part, in the flesh. And as inevitably happens when that's the case, he cracks up under the strain. And what God's telling him here, what he's telling him now, is that he's got more than enough men to do whatever he's needed. And that he will never ask any of his people to do what is beyond them. Elijah thought that the success of God's work depended on him. Men think that far too often. And he here had to learn the lesson that God's success depends on God alone. And that we as Christians are called before all other things to be faithful rather than successful. So if, if we've done all we can if we've given all we're able to give, then listen, we've done enough. And if the task remains incomplete, if success isn't one in the way we hoped it would have been, then we need not worry. We don't need to take the burden. For either God will bring in another person to do it, or it's not his will to bring things or to take things on maybe as far as we would like them to go, as we would. How many Christians there are, I think, who need to learn this kind of lesson? Christians who drive themselves into despair because they see something and they think that God's got no one else. Nobody else can do it. It's all on me. Elijah learned this lesson. And because of this, I believe he was helped to climb out of his pit of despair. May each one of us learn in the same way the lessons God wants to teach us. And may we learn to deal with our own hard times and with the hard times of others in a similar way to the way God does here. Gently, lovingly, patiently, kindly, Allowing time, helping us to realize 
that it doesn't all depend on us. It's not all about me. God has got it in his hands. Take that burden from yourself. Let's come and pray. Father, by your grace, we pray for your people. And we know that, Lord, often out of a real sense of commitment and a desire to serve you, yet often we do, we start to think that if we don't do it, the job's never going to get done. And we get exhausted, we get worn down. But Father, you don't put upon us more than we can bear. And your work never depends upon one man or one woman. Ultimately, your work depends on you, and it depends on you bringing people into it. Elijah, he thought there was no one else left in the whole of Israel. But the Lord told him that he had 7,000, unknown to Elijah, 7,000 that he was ready to use to bring that task to completion. Oh, Father, help us to give our lives again into your hands, that you may use us as you will. And may we be ready to be used in that way and not insist on being used in the way we want to be used. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.